calling all financial advisors. Get ready to boost your practice, portfolios, and network at the Exchange Conference, happening in sunny Miami from February 11th to the 14th, 2024. At Exchange, you'll gain valuable insights to grow your practice and sharpen your investment acumen with the top investment experts. But that's not all. By attending, you can earn over 10 CE credits and join a network that goes beyond business. Join a community that's dedicated to your success. Learn more and register now at exchangeetf.com. ETF Prime is hosted by Nature Racine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. Some guests appearing on this program may also be financial sponsors of ETF Prime. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Tom Lydon, Vice Chairman of Vetify, and I'm looking forward to this. We're going to dive into the world of alternative ETFs. So think broad commodity ETFs, gold ETFs, uh, managed futures, REITs, even crypto ETFs. And I'm sure many of you will uh, recall last year when both stocks and bonds were down uh, substantially, alternatives got a lot of run. Maybe not crypto, but certainly several of the other areas. Uh, for example, an ETF like DBMF, which is a managed future strategy ETF, that was up 22% last year, while the S&P 500 was down 18%. And I remember there was a lot of talk about the death of the 60-40 portfolio and how uh, investors and advisors need to consider strategies like DBMF and other alternatives because the correlation between stocks and bonds uh, had risen, and that was going to be problematic for portfolios. Of course, the challenge with that is, if you look uh, this year, performance has flipped, and DBMF is now trailing the S&P 500 by about 26% in 2023, and it's even trailing broad bonds by about uh, 7%. And that's not to pick on uh, DBMF. I'm just using that as an example. And so Tom and I are going to have a conversation around this in terms of where alts fit in a portfolio, what type of investors should be considering these. And as part of that, we'll touch specifically on gold and crypto as alternative investments. So we'll see what we can cram into about 15 minutes. I'll then be joined by Patrick Ryan, president of mutual funds and ETFs at Madison Investments, who just entered the ETF space in August with a suite of actively managed ETFs. They now have four ETFs altogether, about $250 million in assets, though this is a $23 billion asset manager overall. And so we're going to discuss Madison's decision-making around entering the ETF market. We'll obviously take a quick look at their ETF lineup, which does include a covered call ETF, a dividend value ETF, and uh, two bond ETFs. And then I also want to get Patrick's thoughts on the rise of active ETFs in general, which continues to be a hot topic. And then to close this week, a fantastic guest for you. I'll be joined by Daniil Shapiro, director at Ceruli Associates, uh, who's a research and consulting firm specializing in global asset management trends. And uh, Daniil specifically focuses on ETFs and alternatives, which that'll tie in very nicely to my conversation with Tom. Uh, but we'll also discuss the rise of active ETFs, 
along with uh, some of the other biggest industry trends from Daniil's perspective. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter, at Nate Geraci, or you can go to ETFprime.com. Let's chat with Vetify's Tom Lydon. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. This is a challenging time, probably the most challenging in 30 years. Coming out of the financial crisis, $600 billion in ETF assets. They're starting to understand that there's more opportunity outside of those major market indexes. Tom, how was the long holiday weekend? Were you able to relax a little bit? It was great, Nate. Thanks. Hope, hope you had a great Thanksgiving, too. And uh, I'm just trying to work off a few pounds. I, I ate way too much. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's always my uh, my favorite holiday. I drink, It's like forced relaxation for me, right? You have good food, football, family, and friends. I think for me, it's good just to uh, shut down a little bit. But glad to hear you had a, uh, a nice holiday. Um, you okay. too. Okay, so as soon as you're done recording here, as I understand it, you're running straight over to Moderate uh, Moderate Vetify's Alternative Symposium, uh, where you'll obviously be covering the areas I mentioned at the top, right? So broad commodities, uh, gold, managed futures, real estate, crypto, uh, private equity, pretty much everything outside of more straightforward equity and fixed income exposure. And so we, we thought this would be a good topic for us to cover this week. And I, I guess before we get into our conversation, this symposium will be over by the time most people listen to this, but a replay will be available online. And so do you want to just give us a, a, a quick preview here? Like, why are you focusing on alts now? And what are you hoping advisors will get out of this? Well, Nate, you did a great job in the intro kind of talking about what's happened in the last couple of years uh, in equity markets and fixed income markets. It's been tough for investors. It's been tough for advisors. Uh, you know, having a couple years where you're having negative returns in the bond market, that, that just hasn't happened in almost four decades. We've also seen a lot of people moving away from the traditional 60-40, as you pointed out. A lot of people have raised cash. Uh, you look at areas like JP Morgan Asset Management, Morgan Stanley, they've disclosed recently that they have 25 to 30% cash for their managed clients. Um, that money eventually has to go somewhere. And more and more investors are looking for non-correlated assets to kind of smooth out those bumps. Advisors, as, as you know, we're surveying them all the time. Six months ago, their biggest fear was inflation. Today, their biggest fear is market volatility, valuations, that type of thing. So we thought it was a great time at the end of the year where advisors are thinking about 2024 allocation, sitting down with clients, setting goals what's most important. And uh, we're seeing more and more interest in alternative strategies. You also mentioned alternative income, kind of those covered call strategies. It seems like every issuer out there now is putting up some of these covered call strategies for alternative income for all the right reasons, because if rates are lower a year from now, it's nice to be able to have a steady stream of income that's outside of something that's controlled by the Fed, right? Okay, so no, I think that's a that's a great preview. But let let me ask you this because as I thought about our conversation today, I, I thought a good way to maybe set this up would, would be like this. So bear with me. Um, you and I know that a popular refrain over the past decade plus is how ETFs have democratized access to institutional caliber strategies, right? I, I know I've said that numerous times on this podcast. I'm assuming you've said that plenty of times in a, a variety of settings. And so the question I have is, is this actually a good thing? Because you and I also know a diversified stock and bond portfolio is difficult to beat over the long run. And in general, I would say many of the alternative ETFs that have come to market have had a pretty tough go of it. And, and, and look, I, I know the market environment has been challenging for a lot of these strategies, right? It's been large cap U.S. stocks and not much else for a, a, a long period of time. But, but again, going back to my example at the top, you take an ETF like DBMF, the uh, Managed Futures ETF, or PDBC, which is the Invesco Commodity Strategy ETF. I, I was looking this morning, 
Those things are trailing the S&P 500 by around 25 points this year. 25 points. And I know they outperformed last year, but I just wonder if some investors piled into these with, with all of the headlines around the death of the 60-40 portfolio, and they've now been burned. And so, again, Tom, just to get us into the conversation here, um, is this democratization of non-traditional assets and strategies really a good thing for investors? Well, you're sounding like Jack Bogle a little bit here, Nate. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, are, they, are these tools too sharp? Is somebody going to cut themselves? I mean, look, if we set the stage and look at the traditional 60-40, we know that it works over time. But if you stick with it and you've got the discipline to stick with it, and if you're an, if you're an investor and you're trying to grow your portfolio over time, yeah, even going through the last couple of years, it, it works in the long run. So that's one investor who maybe doesn't have a lot of time or knowledge, but knows that if you just stick with that strategy, that's great. Then you go on to the other side where, look, there are non-correlated opportunities that have their own trends. We know from surveying advisors, almost two-thirds of advisors have some type of tactical strategy that they implement for their clients. And we know most advisors did something to move away from the 60-40 over the last couple of years. And maybe if it was just putting some on the sidelines in cash, they did well for their clients. But at the same time, if there are other areas that maybe were showing current uptrends, if you're just using like a 200-day average, you had an opportunity to maybe catch some of these uptrends where traditional areas of investing were in downtrends. And if you stuck to that trend line or the 200-day average, yeah, you would have got a piece of that upside last year. And if you were selling when you went below the 200-day average, you would have sold a DBMF or a PDBC uh, for, the, for those right reasons as well. So it all comes down to these tools that are fantastic and they continue to grow with, with choice. But how do you use them and not shoot yourself in the foot? It, discipline's important. And if you have a strategy where you've got a tactical strategy and you've stuck to that over time, not just using them, but how much you allocate is also key and critical. So I, I'm with you and I believe 100%, but I think we talk about that as advisors all the time. You, you can't just look at these shiny objects because usually the shiniest objects are the ones that already had their up move, right? Hey, I've been called um, way worse things than Jack Bogle, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, look, I, I thought that's well said. Maybe I'm in a skeptical uh, mood today. I just wonder, I, I'd love to see the performance of advisors who are um, dabbling in alt ETFs and whether or not it, it is additive to a portfolio, whatever they're doing, if they're being tactical w with it uh, or otherwise over the long term. I, I guess I'm just skeptical. But I think what you said makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think, number one, it all comes down to understanding these strategies, right? Do you know how these are going to react in different market environments? Do you understand the potential uh, return drivers? And probably the bigger piece, the more important piece, um, is that investor behavior piece. Because even if an investor understands, uh, let's say, a managed future strategy, and again, this isn't to pick on a managed future strategy. I, it's just front of mind for me because it had such a big year last year. But, um, you know, the question is, can an investor stick with that? And uh, again, DBMF is trailing the S&P 500 by 25% plus this year. So can investors stomach that difference? And to me... The answer to that should really dictate whether uh, an investor or advisor should be using the, these types of alternative ETFs. If you can take a longer-term approach and you can understand the potential diversification benefits of, of say, a managed future strategy, then great. I, I, I think that can serve a portfolio well and maybe even extremely well moving forward. But you have to be able to stick with it. And my experience is just that a lot of people – uh, can't. And, and then I think going back to, to my first point, um, and I, I just don't want to understate this fact, some of these products are very complex. And I know like you, I always emphasize the golden investment rule, which is that if you don't understand an investment, you shouldn't invest in it. And so yeah. I, I guess my, my high level take time is I absolutely, and, and you know this, I think everybody who listens to this podcast knows this, I absolutely love the innovation in the ETF space. I do like how 
Um, we have democratized access to institutional caliber strategies and really expanded the, the toolkit for investors. But it does come down to understanding, you know, the, the, the tools in that toolkit, how they work. And then that behavior component is so critical. And, and I think in all fairness, look, if you look back two years from now, uh, uh, two years ago, uh, DBMF is down 2% from two years ago. So, so it was flat. Uh, the ag's down almost 17%. Uh, small caps are down 20%. Yeah, the S&P's up 13% last two years. But we also know why the S&P's up. And are, are that many people actually fully invested in the S&P and not in other areas of the broad market? So um, putting it in perspective is important. Diversifying is important, but you said it the right way, Nate. You got to look under the hood. You have to know what you're investing in, and managed futures can work really, really well. I mean, I know the folks and Andrew Beer at uh, at DBMF, and they they're smart. I mean, they're going to be able to take advantage of when rates change and they start going down. They're they're really good at currencies, but you know, it was it was a tough year for them, admittedly. Yeah. And, and to be clear, again, I was 100% cherry picking the data on DBMF just because I'm, I'm trying to make a point here. And I agree with you. I mean, you look at the team over there, Andrew Bear, he's probably forgotten more about investing than, than I know. Uh, you're talking about some very smart individuals. It, it gets back to I don't want to belabor the point. You just have to understand how these strategies work and how they might respond in different market environments. And, and then again, you have to be able to stick with them. If you're going to make an allocation here, um, you have to let them, you know, do what they're they're going to do over a longer period of time. You can't look at my cherry pick data and, and draw some, you know, sweeping con- conclusion on managed futures. Um, okay, we are a bit limited on time this week, and I want to make sure we touch on um, gold and crypto. And, and so let's do that now. And I would say with gold, Tom, obviously, that's a much simpler alternative uh, asset that, that I think more investors can get their uh, head around. And Physical gold ETFs have been popular, right? We know that because there's over $100 billion uh, in, in these products. I, I'm just curious, how do you view gold? Because it does tend to be highly polarizing in that it doesn't produce dividends or income. Someone just has to buy it at a higher price. But it's also been around for whatever, 5,000 years. Are, are you a fan of gold in a portfolio? Well, the story for gold is strong and a little inside baseball for some of the commodity uh, experts that we're going to have on today. uh, They really gave some good insight. First of all, a lot of people got gold wrong last year because they were looking for the China rebound that never happened. And that was a big part of it. In addition, there were a lot of people selling gold, retail investors, advisors that had gold. However, there were some big buyers. Nate, central banks were piling into gold last year when uh, retail investors were selling. Now, looking forward, as we look to 24, the central bank buying is not slowing down. It will continue to pick up as people are looking to hedge against the U.S. dollar. That's one thing that's important. A lot of people feel it may be the year for China. And if we start to see that pick up, that's good from a supply and demand standpoint. And retail gold, especially in emerging markets, as we go into the holiday season, is also really key. So if some of those things come to the forefront, we could see a nice pickup in in gold for sure, uh, especially if the dollar weakens. So a lot of these experts are pinning their hopes that something like that might happen. But back to trends, you know, keep an eye on the trends. And uh, it's, it's another choice. But I think the days of just putting 3% of your portfolio in gold and thinking that's going to save your portfolio isn't going to move the needle. Most people are doing tactical bets in that area. And then hence your, your story about crypto and, and why people are looking at the modern day gold in the form of crypto. And especially with us maybe just weeks away of getting approval for spot Bitcoin, that could really push things further. Yeah, before we get to um, crypto, here's what I'll say about gold. And in full disclosure, uh, definitely not investment advice. As I always say to listeners, do your own homework. But we, we do own gold in our uh, portfolios. I personally like the diversification benefits. I, I always say gold marches to the beat of its own drummer. And once again, I'm, I'm cherry picking some data here. But if you go back to the beginning of last year, uh, before the Fed started hiking rates, Gold is up 9%. 
while the S&P 500 is down 2%. And so I, I do think that's a pretty good example of how gold can operate. But again, from our standpoint, we have to be able to explain to clients why we own gold. We have to explain, look, this is something that, <laughs> that doesn't produce dividends or, or income. Uh, price has to go up. Uh, and they have to understand gold isn't going to perform like the S&P 500. But if, if we look historically, because it, it tends to be uncorrelated, it can offer some some benefits as part of a globally diversified portfolio. Just high level, that's how I view gold. But yeah, and that's and that's completely responsible, Nate. I mean, look for your clients. I think sitting down and explaining that to them, and it's done what it's supposed to do. Um, and in the last couple of years, when equities and fixed income were challenged, it hung in, it hung in there pretty well. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, I think part of it, and this gets into the discussion around spot Bitcoin ETFs or crypto. I think a lot of that. When you get into alternative assets, it comes down to position sizing uh, in that you don't want to load up the truck here, right? You, you have to have enough that you can move the needle, but not so much that it's going to, uh, it, you know, or it could really destroy your portfolio if things go sideways. And then I think discipline rebalancing is absolutely critical, especially in higher vol strategies. And so let's talk a little bit about what you called, you know, modern day gold or digital gold and, and Bitcoin. And we can fold in other cryptos as well. But I mean, as I'm looking at your agenda here, Tom, for the alternative symposium, I see an investing in cryptocurrency strategy session with uh, Dave Lavelle over at Grayscale, Matt Hogan at Bitwise. I see another session on uh, does the future belong to crypto? It looks like uh, Simeon Hyman over at ProShares and, and someone from Galaxy. Um I guess same question here with gold. I mean, are you a fan of allocating to crypto as part of a diversified portfolio? Is this still too early? Where, where's your head at? And we can stick to just Bitcoin if you want for simplicity. Right. So um, personally, don't follow me. You know, I, I, I felt like I got in early. I just diversified some money, put it over uh, into Coinbase, really enjoyed watching it go up. And then I watch it go down all the way to the bottom. And now it's come back a little bit. So once in a while, I look on my app on my phone, but you know, I'm, not, I'm not banking on that. But what we really need to talk about are individual investors and advisors and how comfortable, comfortable they feel investing in, in cryptocurrency. We do that annual survey with Bitwise, and we're about to do the fifth annual survey uh, just in a couple of weeks. But last year, only 29% of advisors felt that they could comfortably provide an allocation for clients, meaning that they didn't have either the tools or the platform that they could invest in cryptocurrency for their clients. Most feel that if we do get approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF in a variety of different issuers, that now more and more advisors are going to allocate for their clients and they're going to feel comfortable doing so. And boy, the, this rebound that we've seen in, uh, in in cryptocurrency as well has also helped fuel some interest as we're going into the new year. Yeah, I think I'll be a little bit of a broken record here. And I actually said this on a, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, another podcast yesterday. But if you go back to when Bitcoin first debuted, which was, uh, what, 2009, if you had owned a small allocation, that would have offered some meaningful diversification benefits to a portfolio. Again, assuming you did two things. Number one, you sized your position accordingly. You didn't overdo it. And two, you rebalanced in a very disciplined manner, right? If, if you did those two things, Bitcoin was additive. Now, I think we also have to be fair and say uh, 14 years or, or whatever we're at, that's a pretty small sample size. And so, you know, I don't know that we can draw broad conclusions moving forward about um, whether Bitcoin will be additive to a portfolio. But, you know, I, I think for the right investor, um, if you think about Bitcoin as digital gold or, or modern in gold, it, it can make sense, but definitely not for everyone. And I'm going to be fascinated, Tom, when a spot Bitcoin ETF does finally roll out just to see what, like, I, we know there's going to be demand there and there's going to be adoption. I'm fascinated to see the types of advisors um, adding it to a portfolio. You know, is it going to be people operating on a more tactical level? Is it going to be, you know, long-term buy and hold investors that that put it, I don't know, 5% allocation to a spot Bitcoin ETF in a portfolio as opposed to, say, owning physical gold? Just how how the spot Bitcoin ETF is used by advisors is going to be fascinating to me. 
Yeah, and, and they, I think you're hitting on the important thing of alternatives. They, they tend to be non-correlated, and you can smooth out portfolios by having them. And also how you use them is kind of key and critical. Don't get caught up in the emotions. If you're going to allocate for the long term, stick to that allocation. Don't all of a sudden throw a lot more in after it's already had its move. Buy on dips or use long-term trend lines. I mean, I'm just a big proponent. When I started ETF Trends in 2005, it was all about putting a 200-day average on every ETF I could see and identifying what's coming off the bottom, what's going below its trend line, where the momentum is. And today, with all the different choices, there's a lot to choose from, but you have to have that discipline and stick to it. Yeah, and that is what is beneficial about uh, trend following is I think it forces that discipline, assuming you f- you actually follow the uh, trends. And, you know, if you look historically, trends are not going to work on every single asset class. Um, but many of them, especially asset classes that are much more high vol, like, say, Bitcoin or gold, I think it can work very effectively. But, um, Tom... Great chat as always. Best of luck with the uh, symposium today. I know you're, you're running over there now. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks so much, Nate, and enjoy the holidays. That was Tom Lydon, Vice Chairman of Vetify. The Gabelli Aerospace and Defense ETF offers exposure to an industry poised to benefit from increased global defense spending. Ride the global aerospace and defense wave with Lieutenant Colonel Tony Bancroft, a fighter pilot turned fund manager at the helm. Invest in security, soar with prosperity with GCAD. Visit gabelli.com forward slash funds forward slash ETFS forward slash GCAD to learn more. My next guest is Patrick Ryan, president of mutual funds and ETFs at Madison Investments, who just launched their first ETF in August. They now offer four ETFs altogether, already about $250 million in assets, though overall, Madison has some $23 billion in assets under management. Uh, That includes mutual funds, managed accounts, customized investment portfolios, And Patrick is now on the line with me from Madison, Wisconsin. Patrick, uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. All right, so let's start with the uh, obvious question, which is around Madison's recent entrance into the ETF space. Uh, What was the catalyst here? Uh, Why now? Yeah, I mean, when you went through it, I mean, Madison has a a long history in separately managed accounts and mutual funds. Uh, ETFs were really just a natural extension of what we are already doing. And, you know, ETFs have become a bigger piece of investors' and advisors' pies in terms of where they're turning to allocate investor capital. And we wanted to make sure, quite simply, that advisors or investors uh, directly had access to Madison and our intellectual capital, however they wanted to, to actually obtain our investment management services. So an ETF, again, just a natural extension of what we were doing. Uh, so we learned the business and we, and we rolled them out here in August. Sort of on that note, as I know you're well aware, the rise of actively managed ETFs has been a, a huge story over the past couple of years, right? We're seeing the biggest names in asset management finally get involved in ETFs, all types of strategies coming to market. I feel like firms are offering up their uh, best managers. From your perspective, uh, what changed? What was it the ETF rule in 2019? Was it the shifting market environment last year where we finally saw <laughs> rates start to rise and, and again, the environment uh, turn from what we had seen over the previous decade or so? Was it both of those things or do you think there's even more to the story here? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with preferences and ease of use. I think ETFs are easy, especially for advisors and um, clients like to, to access. They can get into the brokerage account. They can get right to them. Um, you know, they don't have the same transaction fees sometimes as mutual funds, share classes on a different platforms. So I think access is a big thing. Um, model development is another. I think ETF models, um, you know, obviously advi- uh, every shop wants their, a, a place in all these different model portfolios, but 
I think active ETFs have a good place within model portfolios, especially when you pair them with passive type investments to help manage risk. So I think there's really a multitude of things that's out there. You know, for us, it was more of the income angle uh, when all four of our ETFs that we've launched have, have an income kind of bias or, or thematic income approach. You know, bonds, uh, you know, yields went down to nothing for a long time, and investors had to turn to either equities, you know, buying dividend or buying stocks for dividends and income and really using bonds for total return as yields fell. But that environment has changed in the last two years. Yields are back to a, a normalized environment, and we thought that the, it was the right time to capitalize on, on something that never goes out of favor, which is income. Yeah, and before we get into the ETFs, just for people unfamiliar with your firm, I would love to have you explain this uh, participate and protect philosophy, which I would describe as really Madison's overarching investment philosophy. Uh, that's the way I would read it. Do, do you want to expand on that? Sure, yeah. Participate and protect is what we've coined our, our investment philosophy here in Madison. Madison has been around since 1974. You know, we do have more of that uh, bent of known being a more conservative, high-quality manager. And participate and protect simply means we attempt to participate as fully, po as fully as possible in rising markets, but really kind of earn our stripes in down markets. So protecting on the, the downside. So I participate on the upside, protect on the downside. It has more of a behavioral aspect to it. We know that investors uh, kind of have a much more uh, negative response to losses than they do joys of, of gains. So we want to help take uh, investors' emotions out of the process when they can make bad decisions, and that's been a core tenet of our uh, participate protect philosophy since day one. Okay, so as I mentioned, Madison did roll out an initial suite of four ETFs. And let me go through these real quick. There's the Madison Covered Call ETF, ticker CVRD, the Madison Dividend Value ETF, ticker DIVL, the Madison Short-Term Strategic Income ETF, ticker MSTI, and then the uh, Madison Aggregate Bond ETF, ticker MAGG, very nice ticker symbol there. Um, the, the first question I have is, are these all clones uh, of your existing mutual fund or SMA strategies, or are these new strategies altogether? So they're, they're not clones and they're not new strategies. So we have a history of managing strategies uh, similar, very similar to each of these uh, particular ETFs, um, but they are distinct enough and, and a little bit different from each strategy in, in terms that they're in a separate composite. So uh, relatively similar to things we've been running, but still have a, a little bit of a different twist within the ETF structure and some of the, the capabilities and, and, and expanding on some of the existing products. Okay, and do you maybe want to pick one of the equity ETFs and one of the bond ETFs uh, and just give us a flavor for how you're approaching the world here? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, on the equity side, certainly the covered call, so CVRD is, is definitely unique in the marketplace. Um, you know, it is a covered call product, as it says right in the name. I think, you know, moving forward, we definitely anticipate more volatility in the equity market. And naturally, uh, that's a, a kind of a, a market in which a covered call type product can thrive. So it's uh, unique in the fact that it's active. It's an active underlying portfolio of dividend-paying stocks and also actively written options contracts. So dual active, uh, again, it has somewhere in the distribution yield that targets somewhere around 6 to 8% each year. Uh, so nice yield, but then also mitigates volatility through the covered call writing process. So, you know, in a, in a year like 2022, that was a product that did, uh, you know, that type of strategy did very, very well. And we definitely think, you know, barring uh, kind of the big run that we've had this year, that as you know, we continue to kind of normalize that, that CVRD is definitely a good place for, you know, income-based investors that want equity exposure uh, with a little bit more upside. And how concentrated and that, do your uh, equity portfolios tend to be? Yeah, that, the cover call is a little bit more expanded, so that's generally going to be up to you know 40 to 60 names. But you know, the dividend the dividend value product is going to be closer to 30 to 40 names, and then obviously uh, other products will get even more concentrated outside of these ETFs. Okay, and then what about uh, on the bond side? Yeah, on the bond side, the uh, the Madison Short Term Strategic Income, so MSTI, I think is uh, is very unique in this environment, especially given the change in yields. Um, so it is a short-term fixed income product and always have a duration of less than three and a half years. But right now, yet that product has a, a duration around 2.7 years, but a yield uh, more recently here very close to 6% investing across predominantly investment grade corporate bonds and, asset and uh, structured product asset-backed securities, um, but will dip into high yield, but really kind of restricted to 25% high yield. So in this environment, 
again, not a lot of duration risk for a very nice yield that you can get for the investors there. Out of curiosity, are you using these ETFs in Madison uh, client portfolios in any way, shape, or form? We are. So this is something we had been uh, looking at within Madison for a long time. We had a, a diversified income fund. Um, it was more kind of historically a balanced product, but with the launch of these ETFs, we've really expanded that mandate uh, to, to kind of utilize all four of these ETFs to really become a true diversified income product. So it uses all, all four ETFs along with a, a few others to kind of augment and really target a high level of income as opposed to just uh, kind of what had been a more balanced product. So Again, the timing was right for us to kind of overhaul that overall product as well. So we're very excited about that. Yeah, and, and sort of on this note, I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about your overall uh, distribution strategy. Like, like, I'm curious, how are you going to get these ETFs in front of investors? Because uh, as I'm sure you're well aware, the ETF space is tough, right? There's a reason it's called the yeah. Terror Dome. So, so how do you go about differentiating and surviving here? Yeah, so I mean, the beauty for us is that we have a you know very strong brand within the intermediary intermediary channel, um, so we can kind of go there first. You know, we have a, a very large presence from the SMA business. I'm um, within you know Morgan Stanley, UBS Wells, RBC, those types of places. So that's kind of our first lean, and we were able to because we we over restructure that fund to have some some decent assets on day one. But from a differentiation standpoint. You know, I don't think we are really looking to do anything different than we always have. It's uh, really, you know, again, that high quality, high conviction, you know, participate and protect mindset, but just in an ETF form. And that's what we're already known for in some of the biggest distribution places across the country. Um, what I think we really wanted to be targeting as well, in addition, which we haven't had as much uh, success in, is with an RIA space. And I think, you know, RIAs uh, are generally large consumers of ETF products. And I think this is uh, kind of gives us our, our area to expand into. So... It's really kind of a cultivating what's already there from the, the largest channels, but really then trying to make a push into some of the areas that maybe these places don't know us quite as well. And again, I think quality and income are something that always, uh, you know, never, always withstands the test of time. So I think that that's going to help our cause. When you uh, mention expansion, is it fair to assume we should expect uh, additional ETF launches for Madison at some point? Yeah, down the road, um, you know, certainly looking at it within the trust, we, we did have another uh, ETF. Uh, like the diversified income mutual fund that we overhauled, so there is in in the in the trust already. We haven't launched it yet, though. Uh, an ETF that will be an ETF, uh, much like that, that will utilize these ETFs. Um, but then we continue to explore other ways that you know we can bring other other products that we have kind of behind the scenes to the fore. But right now, it's kind of a digestion process of just you know getting up and running, seeing uh, seeing what the you know the overall hit rate is for for these types of ETFs out in the market and then adapting and bringing forward whatever we help, else we want to bring to market uh, down the road. Well, Patrick, congratulations on uh, Madison's ETF entrance. Certainly wish you all the success. Thank you for joining me this week. All right. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Nate. That was Patrick Ryan, president of Mutual Funds and ETFs at Madison Investments. Tuttle Capital and Rex Shares have joined forces to introduce a groundbreaking brand, T-Rex, these leveraged and inverse single-stock ETFs are making waves in the market. Currently, they stand as the exclusive single-stock trading products, offering both two-times and negative two-times leverage. But what sets them apart is their affiliation with the ever-popular Tesla and NVIDIA stocks. TSLT and TSLZ provide you with two-times and negative two-times exposure to Tesla, while NVDX and NVDQ offer the same for NVIDIA. Take control of your investments with confidence and precision by exploring T-Rex's two-times leverage and negative two-times inverse leverage single-stock ETFs. Dive deeper into TSLT, TSLZ, and NVDX, NVDQ at RexShares.com. Before investing, you should carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. This and other information is in the prospectus, which can be found on RexShares.com. Please read the prospectuses carefully before you invest. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. The fund is not suitable for all investors. The fund is designed to be utilized only by sophisticated investors, such as traders and active investors, employing dynamic strategies. Investors in the fund should understand the risks associated with the use of leveraged or leveraged inverse strategies and intend to actively monitor and manage their investments. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. I'm now joined by Daniil Shapiro, director at Cerulli Associates, who's a research and consulting firm specializing in asset management and distribution trends worldwide. 
And Daniil specifically focuses on ETFs and alternative investments. And he's now on the line with me from New York. Daniil, it's uh, been a while. Welcome back to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me on the show. Terrific to be back. All right. So I want to start with a topic that is uh, obviously 100% right in your wheelhouse, which is alternative ETFs. We're going to combine uh, your two specialties here in ETFs and alts. And just by way of background, um, I actually covered this topic earlier with Metify's Tom Lydon. So we had a nice discussion around whether alt ETFs are actually good for investors and whether investors should be looking outside of the traditional 60-40 portfolio. Uh, we talked gold, crypto. It was a great discussion. But I'm very curious to hear what your latest research is showing around alt ETFs. Like, are you showing uh, interest picking up around these products? What are you hearing from ETF issuers? To me, this just feels like a topic where uh, we always hear this is the year for alts. Right. And then I feel like the topic fades. It then pops back up. So what, what's your take on the uh, state of alternative ETFs right now? Yeah, I think for a start, um, the ETF structure is a bit understated in terms of how important it is to alternative investments overall. There are currently 400 and approximately uh, $430 billion in, uh, in liquid alternative uh, ETF assets. And that's quite a high amount for um, what was otherwise considered to be really a mutual fund specialty. So there are only approximately half a trillion dollars in mutual fund alternative assets. So at some point, the CTF ecosystem, which has been in, pos in uh, strong positive inflows, is going to overtake the mutual fund liquid alternative uh, slice. So I think that's really important. And another really important stat about uh, alternative uh, ETFs is that um, the reported usage by financial advisors for um, in terms of uh, how often they are used to access alternative investments, including commodities, it's actually quite high. It's actually the structure that is most used by financial advisors to access alternative investments overall. So if, when we pull financial advisors on the structures they're using to access alternatives, and let's start with the fact that uh, not all advisors uh, use alternative investments, approximately 60% use both alternative investments and commodities, but you have a strong 82% of advisors saying that they are using some type of alternative ETF product. And that actually outpaces the mutual fund. It outpaces all of the actual structures, uh, all the other structures, whether it's the intro fund, whether it's uh, private capital structures. It really outpaces uh, all of them, uh, if not in the reported allocations, then in the use of them itself. So in the use of, uh, then in the, use of uh, the structures themselves. So the structure itself is quite important to uh, alternative investing overall. We believe that alternative investments are getting a lot of attention from financial advisors who are looking for that third option to uh, stock and bond exposures. So overall, it's really it's an important ecosystem. It's a growing ecosystem. You have exposures there where they are derivative income exposures, which are getting a tremendous amount of flows. You have uh, buffered ETFs, which are getting gathering a very strong traction in the industry. And then you have a lot of uh, other structures, which are maybe more hedge fund-like, which are also gathering traction in the ETF ecosystem. So for what it's worth, um, it's, uh, it's a little bit, uh, it's, a very, it's a very critical structure for accessing uh, alternative investments. Uh, I think financial advisors are looking to use these types of products more and more over time. It benefits their practices in order to be able to both customize outcomes for their clients, potentially generate additional income, uh, and differentiate their own practices. Okay, so I don't want to put uh, words in your mouth, but just hearing all that, it sounds like overall you're pretty optimistic on the future of alt ETFs. Is that fair? Yeah, exceptionally optimistic. If not for individual categories, then for the broader ecosystem uh, at large, right? You're going to have that very strong commodity sleeve where advisors can access uh, a gold ETF at an exceptionally low cost, for example. You have, all, you have a wave of different um more custom products that are able to offer an advisor an outcome that the advisor is looking for, and that's all going to continue going to continue to gather traction within this structure specifically that advisors like very much. And another reason that I'm optimistic is that you have the potential for more issuers to come in and offer such products to financial advisors via this structure. So that's uh, that's another exciting opportunity here as well. Yeah, and I don't want to head down this rabbit hole, but. Um 
you know, we haven't even talked about crypto ETFs, that if you want to put crypto into the alts category, and assuming we do get approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF or spot Ethereum ETF or both or, or whatever, that's another potential tailwind for this category overall to uh, to watch. Um, oh, OK, let's go through a few of the uh, bigger topics and ETFs this year. And, uh, Daniil, I thought we'd start with active ETFs, which, look, this has been pretty well documented, right? There have been outsized flows into active ETFs, a ton of new launches. I, I believe something like 75% of all launches this year are actively managed uh, products. We continue seeing the biggest names in traditional mutual funds moving into the space. Uh, and so, again, I'm just curious what you're seeing in hearing, I'll, I'll just open this topic up to you. What what stands out as you think about the uh, quote unquote rise of active ETFs? Yeah, there's um, there's a lot going on here. I think first off, you're absolutely right about product development. There's tremendous focus on uh, active ETF product development from uh, ETF issuers. Uh, it's something around uh, when we poll ETF issuers on the types of products they're currently developing uh, or planning to develop. Something like 95 percent of them are focused on transparent active ETF exposures. So that's a very strong focus. And it's gotten so significant that we've actually, one of the bullets in um, this year's uh, ETF report is, hey, don't forget the strategic data is still out there. If you want to offer something that's uh, low cost and maybe helps an advisor solve for a particular outcome. But yeah, you have you have strong flows going to active ETFs uh, on the back of uh, what's really tremendous product development that's happening there. You have a wave of managers. Uh, you have very few holdouts. Uh, that are sitting out of this uh, transparent active space at this point. You have more and more issuers that are looking to launch product there. They're entering the industry. You're seeing growth from Capital Group. You're seeing managers like Putnam, uh, which is already in the industry of MFS, which is one of the, which is the largest firm that largest mutual fund manager that's not currently participating, looking to join an industry in 2024, 2025. So you have this tremendous focus on launching these types of products, but they're kind of there are also a couple of concerns that we have about uh, just the potential for growth here overall. And if it's possible that managers are in certain places overestimating it, I think something that has been very significantly discussed is the fact that some of the most significant flows are going to product uh, that's really quantitative, but not necessarily what we would consider tra uh, tra traditional active exposures. So these are exposures, whether it's from Dimensional, whether it's from Avantis, and then you have the numbers that are also uh, kind of be helped along by uh, whether it's going to be short-term fixed income product, um, whether it's going to be JP Morgan's uh, equity premium income fund with absolutely astounding flows. That all really helps drive that active uh, ETF slice forward in terms of flows, but maybe it's not representative of that broader opportunity for traditional actives. And one of the most significant questions that I received during a lot of uh, client meetings is whether the growth of the ETF ecosystem overall has been driven by advisors saying we believe in passive or whether it's advisors saying that we just want something that's really low cost and inexpensive for our practices. And if the answer is that uh, over time, and this is, this is a question that's exceptionally difficult for anyone to answer, but if it turns out that what advisors were looking for over time has actually just been passive exposure, where they're just disappointed with active overall, and they don't necessarily believe that, uh, especially in those uh, large, what are considered to be more efficient buckets, like uh, large cap U.S. equity and active manager is not required. If advisors truly believe in passive investments, then it's going to be really hard for these active managers to gather traction in this uh, active ETF ecosystem. See, I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that. I think without um, question, the price point, the cost of these ETFs have been a big driver. So some of the issuers you've mentioned, like, uh, say, J.P. Morgan or Dimensional, I would throw Avantis in there. If you look at where they're launching products, they're very cost competitive. And also, to your point, these overall aren't traditional stock picking strategies. These are much more systematic, active uh, strategies. And I think it's a combination of those two things that have really um, driven the interest and driven the flows here, that these are coming in at a much lower price point. And while they are active, they're not so active that there's this you know huge um, potential for, for underperformance. I, I guess if I were to summarize, I think 
a traditional stock picking strategy coming in at whatever, 80 basis points or a full percentage point, I don't think that's going to work in today's environment unless it's somebody like, say, an ARK Invest where it's such high active share, the, the portfolio is doing something so materially different from other holdings that um, you know it can be looked at as whatever, a satellite holding in a portfolio, and so maybe additive in, in that regard. But the, the whole dynamic here um, is very interesting. Well, one question I had for you on the active space, Daniil, is I, I think a big story as we go into 2024 is going to be this uh, the share class structure, this multi-share class structure. I think everybody knows the Vanguard patent expired uh, back in May. We've seen filings from Perpetual, uh, Dimensional, Fidelity to launch ETF share classes of their uh, their mutual funds. Do, do you think that could be a another big driver of active? You know, again, that's been a big story this year, but I wonder if this could be an even bigger tailwind as we go into 2024. Yeah, this is such a very interesting story to keep an eye on. So from the from our 2023 ETF survey, 24% of ETF issuers stated that they are considering developing product via a dual share class structure, which is an absolutely astounding amount get, given that uh, it just hasn't been approved for use for anyone other than Vanguard. And a lot of issuers that we speak with have a perception that it won't be approved. So it's almost as if the entire industry recognizes that this is a potential game changer, right? Imagine having a an ETF share class of a mutual fund, for example, where you are able to offer that more tax efficient exposure to investors whom it's important to. You don't have that. You don't have to do an evaluation between the mutual fund and the ETF because you know you're getting that same exposure. It's the same. It's kind of the beauty of having that true vehicle um, agnostic decision where you can choose the product in the best wrapper that it is for you. So it's a potential, it's an absolute game changer for the industry if it were to be approved. Uh, it's just that there are so many questions about whether the SEC is on board with this. Yeah, and we have to remember that Vanguard is only approved for index-based products, not active. So to your point, you know, that's the big hurdle is will these actually be approved by the SEC for use? Um, the, the only other thing I would add here is, which I think is obvious, you look at some of these issuers like Fidelity and, and say, Dimensional, they have very um, large amounts of assets in, uh, in retirement plans, 401ks and such. Th- those are mutual funds that are held in those. And so by having a share class structure, it would allow them the best of both worlds. They could keep that mutual fund business in the retirement accounts, but also still offer you know, the ETF share class and go after, say, advisors in the retail market. And again, I, I think it could be a huge growth driver, but it will come down to whether or not the SEC uh, gets comfortable. Um, all right. Another big story this year has been fixed income ETF. So I was looking this morning, I show that They've taken in about $185 billion in 2023. That's out of about $450 billion into ETFs overall. I'm just curious, is there any research or data points you might offer around bond ETFs or anything else standing out to you here? Yeah, I think the first thing here is that the fixed income landscape is completely different from a couple from what it was a couple of years ago. So when we looked at, uh, if you, you had yields uh two years ago that were so low that these products were actually risky. They were, this was, this was, a, this was an exposure that advisors invested in for safety, which ended up being really, really risky as rates rose. And uh, financial advisors uh, very often took quite significant hits on their fixed income exposures that were very close to what they took on their equity exposures. Um, so that was all very, uh, that was all unpleasant. But at this point in time, you have higher rates, you have financial advisors who are more comfortable using the fixed income ETF structure. Uh, you have institutions which are increasingly looking to fixed income ETFs. So all in all, there are so many tailwinds for um, fixed income ETFs specifically. So that's really that's something that's driven tremendous manager attention. So what we're uh, what we saw through the survey this year is that half of ETF issuers uh, perceive unmet demand for fixed income product. Uh, and not only that, not only is that perception of demand so significant, it's actually their primary focus. So ETF issuers are saying they're more likely to develop fixed income product than equity product at this point in time. Now, the only challenge here is that this is not being proven out by financial advisors. So only 19% of financial advisors are reporting that uh, unmet, dema- unmet demand for um fixed income products. So that's a pretty significant gap. And it's a gap that uh, last time that we've seen this was with uh, ESG. And that gap has gone completely away as the interest in uh, 
the sustainable exposures just went down tremendously on behalf of both issuers and to a smaller degree advisors. But there is a question as to how much unmet demand truly exists for this type of fixed income product. Well, let me ask you this on that uh, unmet demand. I think that's really interesting. You you know, you look at how granular fixed income ETFs are becoming. Uh, I I think about issuers like bond blocks who are slicing and dicing the high yield bond market or uh, FM investments and their single treasury bond ETFs, those sorts of products. And I, I absolutely love the innovation here. But do you think bond ETFs are becoming too granular? Like, is this all too much for advisors and investors? Or do you think this deeper toolbox is good? Yeah, this is another very significant open question that uh, the industry is going to need to figure out over time. Uh, When you look at the mutual fund structure, what has worked really well are those kinds of very well-diversified exposures. Um, For example, you might have one mutual fund product which owns government debt, mortgage-backed securities, asset-backed securities, um, corporates, um, all those um, all those types of credits really in one product. And then obviously kind of, as you mentioned, you have the ETF structure and everything is very, very niche and granular. And the question is long-term, do advisors just want to do everything themselves and they just continue to pick those uh, individual um, exposures at a very, very low cost? Or will they want to gravitate toward that kind of, um, what we are saying ETF issuers need to build out, are those more diversified types of uh, exposures within the ETF structure? which is where we think the white space is. But simultaneously, there certainly is that open question as to whether advisors will use that type of diversified product as opposed to using those types of exposures that you mentioned, which are very, very niche and granular. And it's possible those exposures uh, play particularly well to institutional channels as opposed to retail channels. So it's possible that um, the institutional channels um, actually do prefer that really, really low cost, um, um, very, very niche ETF product which gives them access to some very, very tiny slice of um, the um, fixed income market. Um, at the same time, retail potentially may be better served by the diversified exposure, but it's just, it's unclear if advisors will actually buy that product. No, I agree. I mean, early indications are if you look at the success thus far of bond blocks or FM, they've done very well for indie issuers um, coming to market, but you know, longer term, it will be interesting. I mean, that's just two examples. Are there going to be other issuers who are able to slice and dice the bond market and find success? Uh, Again, I think that's something to watch moving forward. Uh, Daniil, we're a little short on time, just a a couple of minutes left. Is there maybe one other ETF story that uh, has your attention right now? This can be on on anything. The one thing I want to make sure we don't forget about, don't forget to speak about, is the institutional channel. It's somewhat gets left behind a little bit to the extent that you've had the retail portion of ETF assets just grow year after year over year. So at this point, the ETF structure of assets in that structure are more than more than 80% of them are sourced from retail channels. And it makes it, it makes it easy to just have the institutional channel fall to the wayside in conversations. But at the same time, this is still a channel with um, over a trillion dollars in uh, ETF ownership. You have a wide variety of participants, whether they are defined benefit plans, um, insurance uh, general accounts, um, and they're all looking to increase their use of ETFs over time. I think what needs to be done is that the industry needs to provide a lot of education for these investors and maybe help them understand the different benefits and use cases of the ETF structure. But as you have more and more ETF product, uh, including active product, which is what a lot of these investors tend to gravitate toward, you have more opportunities for these types of investors to use those exposures, um, especially, right, there are more of them. They are more liquid than they were before. The institution is less likely to be a very to be one of the largest uh, participants in that product if it has a lot of assets from a lot of other participants. It all just ends up making that segment uh, potentially – there is that potential for issuers to gather greater trench, to gather uh, greater traction in there by working very, very closely with those types of clients. So we just want to make sure it doesn't fall to the wayside. And defined contribution is going to be very, very difficult for issuers to penetrate uh, because of um, just the other structures, whether it's mutual funds or CITs, which are just a tremendous fit for that channel. But uh, when you're looking at insurance general accounts and the possibility of uh, increasing their use of fixed income ETFs, that's really attractive. And then the same thing with defined benefit plans. That's a great way to... uh, ETFs are a great way for them to use um, to secure a low-cost, long-term core holding exposure. 
Yeah, that's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about that in terms of the institutional side of the equation. You know, you look here more recently, there have been some you know fairly high profile examples of, of pensions or insurers allocating to various ETFs. And one of the things that they'll do is they will come in uh, and, and take, I, I know maybe a smaller allocation of the overall assets in, a, in an ETF, but an institution's not coming in with chump change, right? Typically they're coming in and making a bigger allocation overall. And so as I think about the potential future growth of the ETF space, institutions can absolutely be a big driver here. I mean, we know advisors have been the primary driver of uh, ETF flows and, and obviously retail. I think if you can get the institutional channel fully comfortable, you're talking about a very significant uh, tailwind there. But Daniil, we're gonna have to leave it there. Uh, great to reconnect. Keep up all of the uh, good work. You know I love the ETF research data that Cerulli puts out. So thank you for that and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me on the show, Nate. Always a pleasure. That was Daniil Shapiro, director at Cerulli Associates. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, T-Rex ETFs. If you would like to learn more about T-Rex ETFs, you can visit recshares.com slash T-Rex. Next week, I'll be joined by Morningstar's Ben Johnson. We're going to do our annual ETFs year in review and look ahead to uh, 2024. Can't wait for that. Until then, have a great week, everyone.